Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, well, this month and last month, I am and was exploring the films of Reed Morano, as recommended by Sean Meehan, and in this week's episode, I'll be wrapping up Reed Morano, the month, the two-month period with her latest directorial feature, The Rhythm Section. And is this kind of an unfortunate way to wrap up um, a section that has been so engaging and so uh, great, to be honest with you. I've pretty much really loved or uh, greatly enjoyed the films that I've seen so far, beginning with Meadowland, and then moving on to The Skeleton Twins, and then most recently, I Think We're Alone Now, which was, of course... Um, my number six film of 2018. And to finish it up with the rhythm section is kind of ending things on a dull thud. Uh, The rhythm section is, in pretty much every regard, a disappointment. Um, I saw when it came out that the reviews weren't great. Um, I had read just a few, not really too many. I didn't want to be spoiled, but I, you know, some sources that I trusted, such as like the AV Club, which wasn't keen on the film um, and criticized it for some things that I sort of saw as Reed Morano's staples, uh, you know, the use of wide-angle lenses and um, the, you know, the, the window burn and overexposure the, and the kind of stuff they that they use to criticize the film are things that I kind of see as her trademarks and that I think add to, um, add to her directing and add to the film experience as I've uh, quite clearly documented throughout uh, January and February. Um, So I still wanted to go into it with an open mind, and sure, I'm always a little bit skeptical of a genre release that comes out in January, and rightfully so, Um, but I was thinking that, well, you know, we've got two factors working against this film. Number one, Reed Morano is not a known name for a mainstream audience, and two, Blake Lively isn't really uh, yet the actress that can open a film. Um, sure, she was in, um, that shark movie, which people seem to enjoy, and that Paul Feig movie that people also seem to enjoy. I'm, I'm, uh, I I regret that I, the names are not, uh, occurring to me at this moment, but I mean, she's not inextricably linked with, um, failure or flops by any means, but also she hasn't proven to be a box office draw yet, so I figured, well... Here's a film from a, a, an unknown entity when it comes to a, a director in the mainstream and opening a film with a lead that is not really a household name by any stretch of the imagination. So maybe a studio was just trying to hedge its bets and releasing it in January, thinking that maybe it might get some word of mouth, uh, it, it might kind of catch on in a not exactly crowded cinematic landscape, and that um, maybe it could sort of limp along um, to become a small or mild success um, until, you know, uh, eventually that, you know, both of the actor and the director kind of prove their mettle, if you will. Um, and unfortunately, we have a, a film which is uh, allegedly made on a $50 million budget, which is currently looking at a domestic take of 
a little bit under 5.5 and uh, a worldwide uh, intake of a little bit under 6. So a box office disappointment to be sure. Um, And then also heading over and seeing the critical consensus, um, Rotten Tomatoes, um, you know, audience score of 43% and a critic score of 28%. So clearly not really a loved or beloved movie um, or a success in any shape or form. And yet I still went into it kind of really optimistic because I have loved the work that Reed Morano has done. And even in this one where she isn't the director and DP, uh, anymore. She still has uh, Sean Bobbitt as her DP, 12 Years a Slave, Hunger, Shame, The Place Beyond the Pines, kind of a proven entity when it comes to visually creative and a cast that includes, sure, maybe Blake Lively, but also Jude Law, Sterling K. Brown. Um, Known entities that could lead to something that could potentially be surprisingly good, maybe not great, but surprise me in a way uh, that I just wasn't expecting. And unfortunately, as it turns out, the rhythm section is, in pretty much every regard, kind of a big disappointment. Um, it's even even for a January release, it, it's not very memorable, really. Um, if I wasn't already a Reed Morano fan, if I didn't already kind of bring an eye to it, where I was sort of looking for certain things that she had done, um, certain kind of directorial techniques. Um, then I, I I think I maybe would have appreciated this film even less, but I still was kind of looking to say, like, what about this is a Raid Murano film? Um, and so I did take away some appreciation or some things to appreciate, but overall from not just a cinematic standpoint, but also just as a, as a thing in her catalog, um, kind of a disappointment. Um, I, I mean, if we look back on the films that I've covered on this podcast, each one has sort of had... Um, sure, a lot of her directorial uh, characteristics, but also something unique about each one of them that sort of, uh, even within her oeuvre, if you will, um, made them sort of stand out, uh, or, or, or that kind of had little eccentricities to them. Not eccentricity, but little little kind of characteristics where I was able to kind of take something new away from each one aside from just the story. With Meadowland, we had... Uh, how the camera would sort of linger on the reactions of people and really kind of um, emoting and and getting tone and emotion across without having to dialogue or monologue about it, but just sitting and resting with people's faces and seeing how um, emotion is conveyed subtly and visually and just kind of sitting with the character in their emotion at a state. Um, When it came to the Skeleton Twins, which he, of course, just shot, we had... Um, this idea of how the change, the subtle change in lighting reflected the change in both how the characters saw each other and how the characters were revealing themselves to be to us as the audience. And in I Think We're Alone Now, we have this film grammar kind of uh, once again subtly conveying to us how people's lives are changing, how the characters' lives are changing, and how the characters... Um, worlds are changing with the emergence of each other as significant players in those lives. The rhythm section really has none of that. Um, uh, The rhythm section does have some cool visual, I don't want to say tricks, it does have some cool visual um, elements and and ways to kind of tell the story and, and convey certain things, but it is from beginning to end just kind of at best a standard kind of spy thriller in a way um but 
less exciting than like something like Atomic Blonde, um, less, um, you know, kind of twisty and turny with, with, than something like, you know, a, a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, and it just kind of, it goes through the motions of many thrillers that we've seen before, uh, but without kind of adding something which kind of makes it either um, subversive or unique. Um, it's basically kind of a, a story as sort of seeing uh, that, that sort of cannot answer the question as to why this, this particular story, why this particular film needs to be made. And I did sort of wonder why did Reed Morano choose this film, you know, as a follow-up to I Think We're Alone Now, why this one? And maybe it was just the opportunity to um, make a film that had a, a strong female lead that was sort of, um, you know, a kind of a, a James Bond sort of movie, but uh, a James Bond sort of movie that had um, a, a woman lead at the center of it. Maybe that's something she really wanted to do, and that I can certainly appreciate and I can certainly respect, but the story is not something which evokes intrigue. It's not something that um, paves new ground. It just kind of follows in the footsteps of past better films, despite the fact that it does really have a, a few strong performances. I have to say that I'm not really a Blake Lively fan at all. Um, she is not by any means the problem with this movie. I don't think she's spectacular, but she she was not distracting, basically, it was, it was, which was sort of the best thing that I could hope for. We have Jude Law in a supporting role. Um, he is quite fantastic, to be completely honest. I was kind of enthralled whenever he was on the screen, whenever he was doing anything. And we have Sterling K. Brown, who is always a very reliable actor and who does um, the best he can with a quite a small role uh, that turns out to be, or turns out to, it, it's supposed to be sort of the the big twist or or, or, or our emotional um, journey is supposed to hinge on a big reveal involving him near the end, and it doesn't work because of sort of how poorly his character is worked into the narrative and also how little we actually do kind of care about Blake Lively's character, who is named Stephanie Patrick. She is um, a, a Brit who is kind of uh, at the bottom of the barrel because she's in mourning since her family uh, died in a uh, a, a uh, a bombing on a plane, which was, um, a, you know, a, a terrorist bombing. Um, and she is approached by a reporter who has apparently a lead um, and, and some new information as to what was the purpose behind the bombing, who was the, 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 the perpetrator behind it, and sort of this sets her down this path to kind of eventually um, take on the identity of a, an assassin who was uh, allegedly killed a few years ago so that she can get close to some people that will ultimately get her closer to him to enact her revenge, basically. And there is this idea um, early in the film uh, that is, you know, that could potentially be interesting um, when she's talking about a guy uh, who would potentially, um, well, when she's talking to the man who bankrolled the reporter that brought her the information, uh, she's trying to convince him to continue kind of funding her revenge mission and uh, there's this point that is tried that is made where they say uh, this will not bring you healing, and her response is I'm not interested in healing, and so I thought there's an interesting hook in the sense of maybe this is going to explore that idea of um, how revenge is not cathartic, how this person who starts at the bottom can actually continue 
going further down because of how hollow and destructive pursuing this path of revenge can really be. Except that turns out not to be the case. It actually is kind of quite healing for her, or at least we're supposed to be um, rooting for her and feeling some type of catharsis when she does complete her mission at the end, when she kind of fully embraces this role of this badass um, assassin killer. Um, I'm, I, I, at least my response was sort of like, oh, cool, she's fully completed this, and cool being sarcastic, of course, but like, oh, great, so she's completed this journey into this soulless kind of killer who now not only has no family, but has no soul, basically. I don't know why I'm supposed to feel good about that. Um, there's, you know, the, the plot kind of plays out exactly as you would expect it to be, or, or as you would expect it to play out, so much so that as we were watching the film, my fiance and I were just kind of thinking like, oh, the film is clearly setting us up for this guy to be the real perpetrator, but I'm sure it has to be this guy, because that would be so obvious. And then it turns out to be the obvious thing. And that is, you know, solely a, 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 a blame that has to be placed on the screenwriter, Mark Burnell, who wrote the screenplay based on a book that he had written. Um, so it, it's just, it's a very tepid, uninteresting narrative that, you know, despite how talented of a director Reed Morano is, she can't really elevate that source material beyond just being this uninteresting, unengaging film. And I mentioned sort of these things that she was able to kind of do with these individual movies uh, that she had made or, or had a hand in making previously, and how none of that really seems to be, none of those traits, none of those directorial elements seem to be present in the rhythm section. Superficially, there's some stuff there. For instance, we talked about the window burn when it comes to, uh, well, all these films, Skeleton Twins, Metal Land, and um, I Think We're Alone Now. That is present here. Um, and it's actually in a somewhat interesting sequence in which um, Stephanie makes her first kill, in which she is playing out the role of the assassin for the first time, and she comes to this guy's house, and it seems like it should be a very easy kill, because he seems to be this old, sick, decrepit guy who's in a chair and he's an oxygen mask and turns out to be quite difficult for her. Um, when she enters his room, it's, you know, once again, the curtains are closed, the light is kind of streaming through, and it does have that window burn where... Uh, you just kind of get the sense that it's a grimy, dusty, that there's uh, something in the air. And it does seem to subtly indicate, as that technique has indicated in Murano's past films, that this is a unfamiliar situation to her, that this is unnatural. It doesn't feel natural lighting when she walks into that room. It doesn't feel like um, anything we'd seen before. And it sort of indicates this is her outside of her comfort zone. This is her entering a new, unfamiliar world. And she does struggle with that kill, and she ultimately does, of course, overcome it, but it's incredibly awkward. It's very difficult for her, which is interesting because of how it stands in stark contrast to the training that she is doing with Jude Law's character, and he's just credited as B. He's a, a you know, kind of a, an under, not undercover, but like a, a, a very reclusive um, former MI6 operative. Um, he is the one training her to kind of fulfill this role of being an assassin, and he's uh, training her to fight and shoot and all these sorts of things. And there um, is a scene 
where uh, she is asking him to train her to be uh, on how to fight, and he refuses. And they're sitting at a dinner table, and he just kind of grabs her by the hair and pushes her head down, and she's and she tries to fight back, and it becomes a sort of impromptu improvised improvised impromptu improvised fight in which she is um, trying to show him what she is capable of. I'm sorry, I've mixed up the scenes because he does eventually train her and then there is a this this there the her pushing her head down is a different thing where he's just kind of trying to show her uh how tough things can be and then there's a sequence later on where he on a whim kind of uh starts an impromptu fight with her that takes place in this small kind of cramped uh kitchen where he is living and uh there, it's going back and forth, you know, she's throwing things at him and he's blocking it, he's trying to kind of counter and some, sometimes it lands and sometimes it doesn't and eventually she gets over on him by, I believe, um, kneeing him in the genitals. Um, and it's all done in one take. And it's not just that it's impressive because it's done in one take, though there's certainly something to be said about that, but um, Murano has this, uh, has this capability or, or this, uh, this, this tendency in the past to kind of light things in such a way which makes it kind of seem natural and by filming this fight sequence in one take in such a cramped space and by not cutting back and forth and by keeping us aware of how cramped the conditions are and how awkward these two are fighting in these cramped conditions kind of has that emotional uh uh, feeling of, of naturalness, if, if not just a kind of an aesthetic natural feel to it. It does kind of feel emotionally natural, or at least kind of um, situationally natural, even if the lighting doesn't necessarily reflect that. It's a really interesting sequence. And then there is a sequence later on in the film in which she is involved in a car chase, which is all shot in one take, which is immensely impressive, I must say, from a production standpoint, from a directorial standpoint, because she's weaving in and out of cars and swerving around in these narrow streets and trying to avoid hitting people on uh, motorcycles and carts and that sort of thing. And the whole time the camera is situated in the passenger side, mostly sort of looking directly out the windshield where her uh, view is, where our, where our eyes are looking, but then occasionally panning over to her in the driver's side and seeing how panicked she is. And by shooting the sequence like that, by not cutting back and forth, by not making this like a, uh, you know, a Paul Greengrass, Jason Bourne car chase through the streets of New York City or whatever, we we don't get that sense of um, excitement. What we do get a sense of is, is, is instead being trapped, that she is unable to not just escape the physical space where she's in because she's in a very tiny car, but also the situation she's in being chased, she can't, she can't actually get out of this. Like she has to keep driving. She has to keep going. If she stops, she dies. And by keeping the camera on in the passenger side and continuously looking at her and looking at where she's going, it adds kind of a stress, kind of a frenetic feel to it. Um, but also adds a sense of inescapability of like, we just have to keep moving forward. She has to keep going. We can't get out of here. And it's tense and it's stressful and it's exciting, but you also never really get the sense of she's an expert, that she knows what she's doing. This is something which is once again outside of her zone of, of expertise, of comfort. Um, and that shows a real, that, that Murano is really kind of tapped into the emotional truth of the character in that scene at that time. Beyond that, the film is really kind of, at best, standard, and at worst, sort of really 
confused as to what kind of film it wants to be. Does this want to be a film where someone finds um, emotional truth and catharsis through enacting revenge? Does it want to be a film that kind of tells us, well, like, well, this is futile and this is soulless and she you know is is treading down kind of a, the the road to perdition where she will never be able to return again it can't really decide that and i'm actually kind of disappointed in the fact that in past films Murano has done such a great job of being able to convey an emotional connection to our characters from us and to the characters with each other through scenes that don't rely on dialogue that don't rely on exposition that don't rely on the characters kind of having to tell us and to signal to each other this is how i feel and this is what's going on um and unfortunately with the rhythm section there are a whole lot of scenes in which the characters are telling us what they feel in which they are telling us what is going on and it's that you know it's breaking all the rules of show don't tell it's telling us it's not showing us because this is a plot-driven film. It's not as character-driven as Metal Land or as the Skeleton Twins or as I Think We're Alone Now. Um, it has to rely on, you know, on the plot, on the idea of finding out who the perpetrator is, on following the next lead, on going to the next location, on, um, you know, contacting this source and finding out this information. And there is so few scenes where we can really kind of sit with Stephanie's character and and feel with her she tells us a lot how she feels and we see a whole lot of flashbacks which are supposed to indicate she is really sad because she has lost her family i get that but there has to be more to it than just that and so in theory maybe the more to it is she discovers a new identity from being an assassin or she discovers that what she really wants is revenge when it's actually like oh no i don't want revenge um and it kind of tries to go both ways and succeeds at neither of those things um and now if you're you know if you're the kind of person who loves john wick or atomic blonde that's totally fine i'm not disparaging those movies i must admit i haven't seen atomic blonde but hell i've loved uh the john wick movies as much as you do um i'm going to see the fourth one when it comes out you know so this idea of just like hey a, a badass person being a badass in badass ways i am all about that this film is not that, though. Um, this film isn't as exciting as those films. It, 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 you know, it, it tries to be you know, even more emotionally complex than John Wick, which John Wick is very simplistic, especially the first one. Uh, dude's dog gets killed, so he just kills everybody that was involved in that. It's simple, it's kind of silly, but it's fun. Uh, there's no silliness in the rhythm section. Uh, but it's, it, it, it takes itself so seriously, and it, it doesn't have anything to kind of back that up um it's really kind of disappointing and also uh the revelation of who the big bad is because as it turns out you know she's um following who she believes to be uh, a terrorist who was the perpetrator of the bomb and then it turns out that sterling uh, k brown's character sorry um is the one that uh i god it's, it's been a while now and it was such a thud that i even kind of forgot the finer points of it but Sterling K. Brown's character, Mark Sarah, turned out to be the one who somehow allowed this person to actually perpetrate the terrorist act, whether he was the one that funded it or whatever. But it just, it, it's, listen, the, the nitty gritty of the details are not super important. What is important is that 
his we spend so little time with his character that he being a threat of any kind, whether being clearly antagonistic or whether uh, it being a a shock and surprise as to the role that he played in it, um, both of those things have not been developed. It falls flat. We spend so little time with him that we don't really know why we're supposed to care about his role. We don't know why we're supposed to care um, or, or why Stephanie is supposed to care about him. There's a scene where she, where she fucks him, and maybe we are supposed to believe that she does that because she suspects him so that she can get close to him, but that's not clear. Um, and if it is just a thing where she's kind of falling for him because he's the only real one that seems to care about her, that's not developed enough. So he is supposed to be this integral part in not just where the narrative comes together, but where the emotions come together. And he's supposed to be the capstone to the whole, to where the, the narrative threads and the emotional threads are coming. And it, and it just falls short. And it's, it's disappointing. It's disappointing not because it's a bad movie, but because it's not a memorable movie. And, you know, I had problems with, uh, with Metal Land. Um, you know, the, I can understand if you had problems with the Skeleton Twins because of how, you know, those characters are. And, you know, I, I know that at least one, one listener out there is certainly not a fan of I Think We're Alone Now. But there are things to respond strongly to. Um, you know, I, I didn't love either the, the third act and I Think We're Alone Now. Um, but Murano is doing a lot with very little, you know? She's evoking a lot of emotion, or she's trying to evoke a lot, and she's doing it without kind of having to rely on a big budget or, uh, you know, a, a high concept or anything that's that's flashy. And in this one, she has a big budget. She has a, a high concept, and it just kind of falls flat. It's fallen so flat, both in terms of critically and financially, I even kind of wonder, and I texted this to Sean, if she's, uh, you know, if it's going to be a while before someone gives her the money to, to direct a movie again, is she going to have to go back to just kind of being a DP for a while and, you know, to kind of build up some reputation or some credibility or a bank or something? Or is she going to, you know, start kind of start going the way of what a lot of women directors do that uh, start an independent film and just kind of, you know, do the TV thing? And I don't say that in a disparaging manner either. Karen Kusama who's done The Invitation, who did Girl Fight, uh, and Flux as well, speaking of a high-concept movie. Um, she does a lot of TV directing, and it funds a lot of the work that she wants to do. That's not a bad route to take. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying if Marana wants to be the one who kind of makes movies and just kind of wants to be known or just wants to be a director, this seems to be a real serious hurdle for her now. And what is her career going to look like after this? Um... I did find it interesting that, you know, once again, she wasn't the DP on this movie, but uh, she still is credited as a camera operator. I mean, she's still doing a lot of uh, her own work, which I think is fucking awesome because she still is literally being hands on and still kind of, um, you know, having a significant role in shaping how her she wants her films to be. And so... With that in mind, it sort of seems like, you know, this was the film she wanted to make. This was the film that she wanted us to see. I'm just wondering why. And I don't really have an answer for it. And it's, 
it's such an unpopular movie that there's not really a whole lot of stuff out there. I, I was Googling and seeing maybe like, was there studio interference? Did she want to make one movie and the studio wanted another one? Was something taken away from her? Was the script changed? Was, you know, was there interference? And I just can't find much about it. And once again, it, it's, it's already kind of been forgotten that I wonder if we're ever going to learn anything more about it. Um, I certainly hope so, though. I, you know, I, I hope this is just an anomaly because all of her work before this, at least the stuff that I've covered, I've, I've really, really enjoyed. She's a very talented filmmaker, and I really hope that there's more kind of coming from her in the future. So, um, yeah, so that's really all that I have for the rhythm section. In terms of availability, it is not yet, uh, you know, it only came out last month and has just recently left, so it's not even available for um, purchase on Blu-ray or anything. I'm, I don't think it's streaming anywhere yet, so it just kind of is a movie where if you didn't get a chance to see it, you're probably going to have to wait a little bit. Um, and if you did see it, um, I would be curious as to hear what you have to say about it. Shoot me an email at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Tweet at me at uh, Nolan Fixes Teeth or just chime in in the, in the comment field on this episode. But that does it for January slash February. That does it for Reed Murano. And that does it for me for a little while. As I said on the last episode, I'll repeat again. Getting married in March. There's a whole lot of stuff to still do. And also just in terms of kind of uh, being able to dedicate my mental energy uh, so that I have the bandwidth to kind of deal with what still has to be done and just kind of not having to worry about like, oh, I got to get home and I got to watch this movie and I got to take some time out to kind of cut this episode and record that and kind of get this out. I'm just, I'm taking a break for March. Uh, this is not uh, a goodbye. As it used to be, this is just a hiatus that I can kind of get, um, devote my energies where they really are needed um, because there is very few things in life which are a higher priority than getting married, of course. So taking March off, Still going to be working on laying some groundwork so that by the time I come back in April, um, not only will I have a wife, which is very exciting, but I will have also a new guest and a new theme. And we'll, we'll, we're, where we'll just be picking back up where we left off and just kind of proceeding. So I hope you've enjoyed Reed Murano. I hope you enjoyed these past couple months. I'm sorry for the hiccups in the scheduling and kind of delays. It's been a bit crazy. Um, and so that's precisely why I'm taking uh, some time off in March so I can uh, just deal with the craziness as it comes, as I'm fully equipped to do, and just being able to get back uh, in April, um, a married man who can devote his full energy to um, what life has for him. And so it's going to be a very exciting time, uh, but there are going to be, uh, it's going to be dead on the airways for a little bit, not just on here, but also um, on the cast of Cthulhu. And also if you um, do uh, have such a, a fondness for my dulcet tones that you do want to keep yourself entertained and you haven't checked out the cast of Cthulhu, I would encourage you to do that. Um, check out cast of Cthulhu. Whoop, sorry. Yeah. Cast of Cthulhu.podbean.com. Um, as of this episode recording and posting, we have um, nine episodes up. The most recent, which um, being the 1970 version of the Dunwich Horror. The next episode will be the 2009 adaptation of the Dunwich Horror, which is actually called Witches, um, put out uh, uh, on the Sci-Fi Channel, both of which star Dean Stockwell, but in very different roles. That's been a lot of fun. Not a lot of people listen to that podcast yet, so I'd encourage you, if you are a fan of this podcast, you just want to check it out, head over to the cast of Cthulhu, that's C-T-H-U-L-H-U on Facebook, um, cast Cthulhu on Twitter. Um, 
like the Facebook page, subscribe on iTunes or uh, Podbean or wherever you listen to this. I would really certainly appreciate the support and it would give you a little bit something to kind of fill your time while you're waiting for me to come back in April. So once again, that does it for Reed Morano, that does it for February, and that does it for me for a while. So I hope that you certainly enjoyed this. Um, be sure to tune in in April uh, where I'll be married and where I will have a new guest, a new theme, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 